0: Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, God's Desires vs. Human Desires. Curtis. Good afternoon. Thank you, Ron. Hello. It's good to see everyone here. I didn't see any boats parked out in front, so I think it's, that's a good sign. It's been quite a week. Uh, I think all of us have, at least in my 30 plus years on this earth. I can't quite remember this much rain before. I know in 1986 there was a big flood here in this area. But it's been uh, something else. And also, I mean, of course, we do have prayer requests coming up. We should just remember to keep some of these people in our prayers. Maybe some of us that are even affected. I've seen uh, people who have had damage uh, living in the area that I live in, in Bixby. And I know that everyone here has seen what's been going on Uh, whether it be on the news, uh, and a lot of people are affected, like, uh, by this flood and by other things. So, let's just uh, keep those people in our prayers. Well, the title of my message today is God's Desires versus Human Desires, and uh, it was, I think, back in November, I gave a message entitled Carnal Perceptions versus Spiritual Perceptions, and I had two points that day, and I was being teased by Matt Steele before the message about this is he said, is this a semi-retread message? And and uh, I hope not. And th- that message, I like many times I've done before, I ran out of time and I wasn't able to get to my second point. And so today, that's what I want to look at. And so as the title of the message implies, I think all of us could probably guess, uh, or at least think of a few passages in the Bible, a few examples that show and demonstrate that God's desires and human desires are not always one and the same. I mean, as Christians, as people who are following after, uh, you know, wanting to be godly, wanting to be good Christians and followers of Christ, I mean, that's our goal, right? We want our desires to align with God's desires. We want that new creature to continue to be developed in us to the point where as we grow in our faith and the stature of Jesus Christ, that we continually become more and more in line with what God desires for our life. But I also know that most of us can probably think of examples in our lives where we know, for a fact, maybe we didn't know at the time, but we know now, after the fact, that maybe we had a desire, and later it came to light that that really probably wasn't God's desire for us. I remember a song, and you know most of us here know who Garth Brooks are. Garth Brooks is, being an Oklahoman but he wrote a song called and I don't know if he wrote it, but he sung a song, one of his popular hits. That was entitled, Unanswered Prayers. anyone ever heard of that song before? It's it's really a good song. And basically, the song is basically thanking God for unanswered prayers. I mean, it was a a love song. It was about how he was in love with this woman or this girl, maybe when, when he was young. And then, you know, his life goes by. It didn't work out with this woman. He always prayed that this woman would be his wife or a part of his life. But basically, in the end, when he is married to this new woman, which is his wife he realizes how much he thanked God, looking back, for those unanswered, for, that, for that unanswered prayer. Because he realized that at the time, he didn't quite know what was best for him. And so today, the basic thrust of this message is that sometimes our choices, our desires, our inclinations are in contrast to God's. It's probably something everyone in here, we all agree with on that. We're going to look at one particular example, and then we're going to just try to draw some implications from this example. Okay. The first example I want to go to is in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. Let's just go there real quick. just want to read some context. It's the example of King Saul. We need to know a little bit about what was going on in Israel. We'll just kind of quickly go, go through that real quick. But what was going on in Israel at this period of time, just picking up in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king, to judge us, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, when they said, Give us a king, to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people, and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forever forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So we see the context here is we have this individual, Samuel, who was at this time acting as a judge, the spiritual leader I guess you would say of the nation this is before they had a king and what basically was going on was that they were really worried that you know Samuels getting old and his progeny his sons his descendants did not follow after his ways but were wicked and so they were worried about the future of Israel and all around them the way nations who had previously plundered them they all had kings and this is exactly what was going on here? They wanted a king. So if we go down and we see this is something that displeased God, but we ask the question, well, what was it that displeased God? Was it the fact that they wanted a king, or was it more of the motivation behind why they wanted a king? If we were to skip down to 1 Samuel verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 19, or let's pick it up in verse 20. And I don't know if I gave Brian that passage, so I hope he can... I apologize for that. But verse 19, just kind of going into where Samuel is giving the nation of Israel this warning of what the king, you know, what a king would entail. And the people refused his warning. They didn't care about what Samuel had to say, they still wanted a king. And in verse 20, it says that, that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's why they wanted a king. They wanted a king to lead them. This was what was the rejection of God. The fact that they just solely rely on God, but they wanted a king. They needed that earthly individual. And so there was a motivation behind there that we see that was the problem. So God gives them what they want. Israel gets what they want, but it's not what they think. Let's go to 1 Samuel, verse, just a chapter over, verse 1 and 2. We see this, we've read, we've read this before. In verse 1 it says, There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zoror, son of Bakoreth son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulder up, shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Here is the ideal man. Israel's worried about their future. Samuel's sons, they're wicked, they're not following after Samuel's, uh, his character or his characteristics and, and being a man of God and being a good leader, being a good judge over Israel. And so what we have here is, is the ideal person according to what we humans would assume to be ideal. Let's just think about it. He was a handsome person, he was good looking. He was wealthy. He was from the upper class. He was—he had notoriety, or his family had notoriety. Big and strong, very tall. Says that he was—you know—there wasn't anyone in Israel basically that was as tall as he was, or at least—it's at least emphasizing how big he was in, in this period of time, in this region of the world. This would have been something very important because it was the symbol of the nation's power, of the nation's might. People in the ancient Near East placed high value on the stature and appearance of the king. And this seems to be kind of similar to the way our world today works, doesn't it? I mean, let's just think about our our national leaders, specifically our country. You don't really hear about that many people. I mean, maybe you've heard stories of where You know, individuals have rose from poverty or things like that. But usually, in our 21st century setting, we look at national leaders, specifically in the United States, we usually see candidates that have these big resumes, this this pedigree that's just, they went to the right college, they came from the right family, they ran with the right crowd, they were up to snuff, so to speak. That's typically how our... You know, our country works. Usually you don't see people who are just living maybe in, you know, say, Bixby, that's where I'm from, so I don't want to offend anybody, Bixby, Oklahoma, that's just living there. Maybe a middle class person that gets to be and maybe possibly a, a serious candidate for the President of the United States. They don't fit the bill. And we can think about this even in other situations in our life. I mean, we can think about this from different age levels. I mean, let's think about the high school level or, or the young adolescent age. You know, the, the temptation of, of, you know, the popular crowd versus the unpopular crowd and all these things that young teenagers today have to deal with. You know, they, they, they have to deal with, you know, are they wearing the right clothes? Are they running with the right people? Do they play the right sport? Are they friends with, you know, the the quarterback? Things like that. Those things tend to be uh, manifested at a very young age, even in our young children or young adolescent individuals today. So it seemed that Saul was the ideal person. Physically, the way he looked, he came from the right family, but the real Saul, there was just a little bit something about him that just wasn't quite right. And we see this as the story unfolds. We see that this individual, when under pressure, was rash. He was impatient. He was a jealous king. He was disobedient to God and his laws. We know that, for, for example, he was more concerned on many occasions the way he looked around his peers, his servants than actually obeying God, obeying the commands that was given to Samuel, or by Samuel to Saul. And so we see all of these things unfold, and unfortunately, at the end of his life, he is a man that's, by, you know, when we look at it, it almost, the the narrative is almost presenting us a man who is insane, to the point of killing himself, okay? Okay. So, one of the things that he did, which was in First Corinthians, 1 Samuel, rather, 15, verse 28 through 29. And this is just right after God had told him that, he, or not God, but Samuel, through God, had told Saul that he was now being looked over for another person. And the background of the story was Agag and the Amalekites, and God, basically, through Samuel, told Saul that, you know, you are to basically... This is a punishment of the Amalekites for what had happened during the wilderness journeys when they attacked Israel, the Israelites in the wilderness. And basically, they were supposed to wipe out this entire people. But what did Saul do? He wipes out some, most, but he keeps Agag alive. And he keeps some of the best flocks and some of the best items that the Amalekites had. And when Samuel comes to him, he, you know, Saul tries to act like he has done everything that Samuel had commanded him through the Lord. But that's not quite the case. And we read in 1 Samuel 15, verses 28 through 29, it says, So Samuel said to him, this is after Saul had been disobedient. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. And lo and behold, who is the replacement king? You have one king, the people's choice. The ideal individual. The perfect, it seems, from the human standpoint, from the human desires, the ideal individual. And the one who is chosen through God is probably the most unlikely candidate, according to the people of all the, the people of Israel. Let's just think. We know who this individual is. It's King David. And we know some facts about King David. Number one, he was the youngest of seven brothers. It seems to be that his father Jesse had eight kids. There is some disagreement out there because uh, First Samuel seems to indicate that Jesse had eight kids, but The chronicles indicate that he only had seven, but one of the ways in which this is uh, rectified or reconciled is that some see that possibly there was not a contradiction in the biblical account, but rather one of the sons of Jesse may have died at an early age and the chronicler would not have recorded any information about him, especially if this individual did not have any kids. But we do know that Jesse's son, David, is the youngest of all of them. If you've ever read the story before, What we see is, is we see Samuel going to Jesse, and every son that's brought to Samuel is turned away. And after all of them, and Jesse, or not Jesse, but David is out attending to the flock, doing his shepherd duties, he says, do you have any other son? And they're thinking, well, yeah, but it's just David. He's just out there in the field. I mean, surely that's not the one you're looking for. And, of course, Samuel says, bring him in. And what does he do? The most unlikely individual, the shepherd boy, not the wealthiest, not from a wealthy family, not strong, not powerful looking, the most unlikely, unidealistic ruler that probably could rule over Israel, is anointed as king. I have just a quick video just to kind of illustrate this story. Brian, want to put it on. To secure the Promised Land, the Israelites must defeat the Philistines, but King Saul has lost God's blessing, and now he faces the Philistines' greatest champion, Goliath. I win, and you will be our slaves. Someone must fight him. Not you, Jonathan. The warrior who defeats him will be a rich man. Not one man in Israel. Not one of God's people. I'll do it. You're no soldier, you're a shepherd. Yes, a shepherd. As I protect my sheep, God will protect me. Where is your faith? Where is your God? I will kill him. You'll need this. I'll be better without it. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me, the and staff. They comfort me. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. course, if you've seen that before, it is from the uh, History Channel's the Bible series that came out about, I think, in 2012 or 2013. And uh, this was just a quick snippet from the scene of David and Goliath. We've all heard this story before. We've all read it. We've probably watched other movies on it before. We know exactly what took place. The reason I wanted to show you that video is because... Obviously, it's a Hollywood rendition of what went down between uh, the Israelites and the Philistines and Goliath and David, but in a lot of ways, that probably what was like what well, what the Philistines were thinking. Are you kidding me? Really? This is who you bring out to fight our giant, this little child. But the interesting thing is, is that just as the video shows, the refusal of the armor of Saul, because that's not what David relied on. He didn't rely on human shields, he didn't rely on anything like that, he relied on the strength of God, because he was a man after God's own heart, as the passages tell us about this individual. Of course, he's went on to be one of the most monumental individuals in the entire Bible, even having a significant role in our future, the the kingdom of God. If any of you guys play fantasy football, or fantasy soccer, or fantasy baseball, there's all kinds of, basically it's, it's a, all the different sports have this, uh, it's like a competition basically during the season of whatever athletic event it is. And the way you do it is, is that you pick different players to create like the most ideal team. Well, I can tell you this, if David was a football player, you probably would not draft him on your fantasy football team. He would not be the one you would be looking to. To maybe help you in your team. Your ideal team. But the interesting thing. And this is in verse 16, verse, uh, rather 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7. And just getting to that main point again. About God's desires versus human desires. Because we see the comparison and the contrast between Saul and David. And we know the stories. But God says this. To Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is what the heart and soul of this message is about. And I think that what this story in general is about, and this ideal man versus, you know, according to human uh, reasoning according to the standards in which we as in our carnal perceptions and carnal reasonings come to versus God's standard. And I don't think it just has to be physical. I think we can even apply this to other areas. Like, for instance, going back to that, well, does he run with the right crowd? Does she run with the right crowd? Are they up to snuff with you know, the right, the, the, the mingling with the right organizations or the right people? And there's just a few points I want us to consider in looking at this story. Because I think that there's some things that we can see in this and kind of apply it and look at it in other areas. And the first one is, getting back to our choices, desires, inclination inclinations are not always God's. Sometimes I think that what we can do, in this case, we actually see the example of God's desire on, on the king versus human's desire on the king. Sometimes I think that we actually can make God or convince ourselves that somehow God our desires is God's desires in verses uh, instead of the other way around. Instead of aligning our desires with what God desires, sometimes I think that we can convince ourselves to, you know, try to impress our desire on God. Now, let me give you an example of this. Let's go to Exodus the thirty second chapter. We're actually you don't have to go there. We're not actually going to read anything, but I just want to kind of think back to a the example of the ancient Israelites and the golden calf. And just kind of really quickly. And the example of the golden calf, we all have heard the story before. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's getting the the commandments from God. And the people down below the mountain, they start becoming anxious. And they start, you know, where is this Moses? What's happened to him? You know, what's going on, Aaron? Hey, we need something to lead us, okay? We don't know. Moses might be dead up there, for all we know. So basically, the story goes, In their anxiousness and in Aaron's nervousness because of the pressure from the people, they basically say, Aaron, you need to make us gods to go before us. Okay? And what does Aaron do? He succumbs to this request by the people. And they all chip in all their gold and all their silver and all those things. And what happens? Basically, all of a sudden, they're worshiping this golden calf. Now, some interesting points to consider on this. The first one is, is that in that story, they actually fashion this golden calf. And if you read the story in Exodus 32nd chapter, they don't say, here's this new God, this new golden calf that you can worship. But rather, they actually call it the Lord God, the one who brought you out of Israel. This golden calf right here, this is him. So what they did, basically, is they fashioned a deity after what was common. And by the way, this was a common deity, not only in Egypt at this time, but we also have evidence that there were uh, gold and silver calves found in this part of the Middle East in this period of time, like the 15th century BCE, and like Philistine, or Phil, uh, around the, the Philistine area and things like that. And this was a familiar polytheistic pagan god to the period of the day. And so what we see is the people they they went back to something that was kind of comfortable, something that you know that was common to them, something they were comfortable with. We also see though that they fashioned it after what they in their mind pictured God to be. So we see that's one point to consider. Another thing is is the fact that these individuals just before this witnessed the miracles of God in coming out of the wilderness, or rather the land of Egypt. And so not soon after this, what takes place? They revert back to pagan worship that they probably had practiced while they were in Egypt. And so this is just a reminder to me and you. Number one, sometimes we can be tempted to actually try to force God, maybe subconsciously, to take upon our own desires. And we can almost maybe box God up and see Him the way we and our carnal side would see Him. Number two, it's a warning to us because I think that it shows us that even when we think we're immune to maybe falling in this trap of fashioning God the way we think God should be, if we're not vigilant, if we're not continually seeking God, I think this can happen to us. Another point I want to consider is that not only do we, we do this with God, not only do we box God up, do we sometimes force you know, our own desires on God, and I'm not just saying the things that we want in life, but the, the way we see God, sometimes I think we do this with people. Like the example of Saul here, the people's desire was Saul, because he fit the bill, he was up to snuff in what human reasoning would say a king should be. I think that we do this with people, and we can do this with people if we're not careful. Let's go to Mark the 9th chapter, verse 38 and 39. Let's look at an example of this. Mark, the 9th chapter, verse 38 and 39. I picked this passage because I think that today, in the here and now, this is something that's very pertinent. I think we can see this as an example of something that continually goes on, even to this day. But Mark the ninth chapter, verse 38 and 39, Jesus had just got done having a conversation about servanthood and who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And then John rose up and said, John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade them, or forbade him, rather, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Now, this passage right here shows us that, not the complete story, we do know that one of the things as it's presented to us is that John and some of the other disciples, they were worried that this individual was going out casting demons out of people, but they weren't a part of the group. They weren't a part of following after Jesus. Of course, Jesus calms their fears and basically says, look, you know, anyone that's preaching in my name here and actually casting out demons, you don't need to be worrying about that. The reason I wanted to bring this out is is because I think that sometimes we can get into, I'm not saying we personally, I'm saying we that live in the 21st century that are Christians, different denominations across the board, we can look at examples. We get into this, what I would consider a groupism thinking. We get into this thinking that, you know, well, they're not a part of what we're doing. And somehow we think, you know, really? Could they really be... God really be working with them? I mean, they're not, they're not a part. I mean, they don't have, I don't go to a church that's something, something, something Church of God. Right. Now, the Church of God is the Church of God. But we're called the Tulsa Church of God. There's other churches of God that could be called that. I'm not saying we're not a part of the Church of God because I firmly believe we do. But that's just their name. What makes us the Church of God is not because we go out there on that sign and put everything in our different publications on our website and we write the words Church of God. What makes us the Church of God is because we are a group of believers who are baptized, believe in Jesus Christ, and we have God's Spirit. We are a universal organ, organism, not an organization, not a universal organization. And so I think that you could look across the board at different denominations that do this. And it's just a tendency, it's just a human nature thing. Well, they're they're Baptist. I mean, but they're Baptist. Or you could, at some other denomination. Who are we to say who God's working with and who God's not working? Now, does that mean that we have to look at the world and say, well, God's working with everybody, we're universalists, we're ecumenical, everyone's going to heaven and all that jazz? Of course not. We have a standard that's been given to us. But we cannot look at people and say, no, God's not working with them. you kidding me? They keep Pentecostal and Sidon (laughs) 6. We don't know who who God's working with. We need to worry about ourselves, and we need to pray for other people. And I think that the reason that this passage is so important is, is not because we're doing it, but because it's human nature. We see it everywhere. And in our tradition, in the Church of God, we have, unfortunately, many groups that exemplify this behavior. Another passage that we're going to look at, the last one, the example of Pentecost, which we just had Pentecost last week. is the example of disciples, and just one little thing I want to bring out here. The miracle of tongues that came upon them. We all read that story last week, or we heard messages, and we thought about that. The, the miracle that took place on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out. And people speaking in different tongues. And in Acts, the second chapter, verse 7 and 8, this is people looking to what took place. Said, Then they were all amazed. This is people just kind of the onlookers and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And just a little background to this Galilee during this period of time was more of a rural area of Palestine, and everywhere in the world we have areas where, unfortunately, because of stereotypes, we, you know, stigmatize or we stereotype basically certain areas being maybe less sophisticated or less educated, so to speak, okay, and so a lot of people were looking at these Galileans who weren't educated, they were a bunch of fishermen, and they were saying, well, how in the world are they speaking in languages that I mean, I might come, you know, Jews had came from all over the Roman world, and some of them might be speaking specific languages to a specific region, and here you got these Galileans who aren't educated, probably the, considered the most unsophisticated of all the different, you know, groups there in Palestine, and they're, like, able to, you know, they're bilingual all of a sudden, or it seems to be, and they're speaking all these different languages, and a lot of people were perplexed, as the passage says, because it seems to be that they... Saw a miracle took place, but they were perplexed at why it would take place among these uneducated Galileans. I mean, they might believe that God works with people, but in their mind, God's probably not working with them, bozos. He's probably working with the sophisticated, you know, religious establishment of the day. Sometimes I think we can, you know, and when I say we, I'm just trying to include we as humans. Today, we have maybe our mind made up on you know, who, who would God work with? Who would God be leading when it comes to people? What, you know, who would God perform a miracle among? Well, it's not up to us to decide. It's not up to us to you know, box God in and decide for Him who He's going to have a miracle among and who He's not. And so as I conclude this message today... Obviously, there's not necessarily anything new that I've brought to you, but it was just something to reflect upon, because we do know that the Bible is full of examples of God's desires versus human's desires. And even though, you know, we as Christians, we've been given God's Holy Spirit, I think that we all could agree that, you know, there are times that even with the Spirit of God, we can, you know, maybe not be exemplifying, you know, necessarily godly attitudes, or godly desires I mean obviously we're not perfect and we do live in a world we live in a world that still influences us we live in a a carnal culture and society that always tries to basically tell us that you know this is the way things should be and it's an influence to us and it's something we have to fight against and sometimes it it pulls against us and it tries to get us into that fleshly way of thinking of thinking that you know Really, the right way things should be is this. Instead of continually to be open-minded towards that God is, there's nothing impossible with him and he can do anything. So, I know that I'm gravely guilty at this at times, and I'm sure that maybe some of us can think about this as well. So, as we go forward today, I just want us to reflect upon that and just, you know, continue to think about, in our spiritual walk with God, the, you know, The examples that we've been given in the scriptures and how easy it is to get into the thinking that somehow our desires is what God desires. Sometimes, obviously, that's the goal, is to align our desires with God's, but obviously it takes a lot of maturity and it takes a a continual spiritual walk with God.